Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. September the 5th, 2022, Labor Day. Um, earlier today, I did a conversation with Bill McGuire, the author of Hot House Earth. He gives us about 90 months left to save the earth. He suggests he's a rather pessimistic British environmentalist. He suggests if we don't seriously, aggressively address the crisis of the environment within the next 90 months, we've pretty much lost. We may have to leave or we may just simply fry up. Uh, later this week, um, I've got the tech pessimist, Doug Rushkoff, an old friend of mine. He has a new book out, Survival of the Richest Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. The tech guys, of course, always get it before anyone else. They're already planning to leave. The real question is what the world will look like uh, if we've all left. Perhaps we have a hint with my guest today, Neil Wooten. Uh, he has a new book out. With the Devil's Help, a true story of poverty, mental illness, and murder. It's a book about his upbringing in Alabama. Um, and he has a lovely quote in it. He said, I always imagine that centuries after humans no longer inhabit Earth, the planet will become a huge ball of kudzu drifting through space. Uh, Neil, welcome. Um, when we're beginning to imagine the end of the world, when we've managed to destroy it, will it look like um, Alabama? <laughs> it probably will look a lot like Alabama. I'm not sure if all your viewers know what kutsu is. Do you know what kutsu is? Well, you tell us, Neil. You're the kutsu expert. Well, kutsu, uh, I'm not sure where it's from. I think it actually came from China first, but we have the environment here in the south. If you drive up Sand Mountain right now where I grew up, it's just a wall of kudzu. It's just vines that just grow out of control. Uh, the road department has to constantly keep it cut back just so you can drive down the, the highways around here. It just, uh, it's kind of like the blob. It just uh, moves a little slower than that creature in the horror movie. Uh, Neil, you, um, your, your narrative, your autobiography with the devil's help is about growing up in on, on, I'm not in, on Sand Mountain in Alabama. You're currently talking to me from Fort Payne, I think uh, Alabama's mountain town. Tell me about this book. Why did you write it? It's a book, a true story of poverty, mental illness, and murder. And it's your story, isn't it? It's my story, my dad's story, my family's story, and my grandfather's story. The book actually intertwines my grandfather's story along with my family. Uh, and really, I've written 18 books of fiction, and it wasn't until uh, there's a gentleman here that lives in Fort Payne, uh, Bill Potter. He has a Facebook page called DeKalb County, Alabama Historical Group. And he finds these old interesting newspaper clippings, and he shares them. And uh, one day he posted the newspaper clipping from 1962 of where my grandfather shot and killed his oldest son-in-law. And uh, I messaged him. I said, well, you know, that was my granddad. And he wanted to know more about the story. And 
to be honest, I, I never wrote about it before, uh, mainly because it was kind of embarrassing and also. Well, to put it mildly, I mean, uh, I would guess when your grandfather commits a murder, it's more than embarrassing, Bill, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, to be honest, that's not the embarrassing part of the book. Hey, guys, stop barking. Sorry, I have four dogs here. Uh, that's not the most embarrassing part. It's really how we grew up. My dad was a, he was a genius, incredibly strong, incredibly fast, but he just, and he had these get rich quick schemes, but he would never really work at something long enough to make uh, any kind of steady life for us, let's say, you know, so, you know, we grew up without electricity or running water the house that he built for us this tiny little house uh, the walls were not finished in most of it my bedroom didn't even have a ceiling so winters on the mountain people think of heat when they think of alabama but that humidity that makes the the summers uh so unbearable make the winters just horrible uh my ex-wife was from chicago and her first visit to Alabama, Sand Mountain, was in December of 2005. And uh, I remember her telling my family, I don't understand it. I got on three coats and I can't get warm. I said, because the humidity just makes that moisture just, you know, takes that cold right through your, you know, coats and everything. So people don't think about the cold when they think of the south. But the mountain, Sand Mountain gets colder than any area in the south and it, it can get better so when you don't have insulation and you live in a tiny little shack it was rough so yeah that's that's the embarrassing part um neil you, there's a whole genre there's a whole library full of books like yours about growing up in poor families in america there's tara westover's educated for example what does your new book uh with the devil's help what does it bring that people won't know about the lives of poor white farmers um, in places like uh, Sand Mountain, Alabama? You know, I think the main difference, and they take Educated and Glass Castle and even uh, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, these, what I see as the main difference is you have, uh, and I've read all of those, they have uh, obviously had poor, grew up poor, they had a, uh, like Hillbilly Elegy, you know, his mom, single mom, had drug, was a drug addict and educated. You know, she went to, you know, she lived with no electricity because her dad was a survivalist. You know, it wasn't due to lack of money necessarily, but she ended up moving to her aunt's house. She had an aunt who was pretty well off and sent her to school. And so she had that money somewhere in her family. And with Hillbilly Elegy, he had at least his grandmother who could step in and take over. And, uh, and he ended up going to Yale Law School. So it's That's like... That's J.D. Vance, of course, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. I'm sorry? Uh, the author of Hillbilly Elegy is J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, and he's running for Senate in Ohio, I think, right now, yeah. But I'm saying that I think the difference in our family was that we didn't have an outlet. You know, our family as far back as I can can see, we're just dirt poor farmers. So, you know, it's like, I guess when wealthy people, 
lose everything, they go bankrupt their business or they get a, you know, go to prison or whatever. It's like, it's not a big deal because they got, when you say deep pockets, it's because the pockets go to other family members. There's always somebody there to bail them out, you know? So when you grow up the way I did, you never had that. We didn't have other family members we could go to live with. So you were, uh, now you were the, the poorest of the poor. Kirkus describes your book as earnest and sorrowful. Was there any sunlight when you were growing up? I mean, what would you do on a day like Labor Day or Thanksgiving or Christmas Day? Was there any celebration? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, keep in mind that my dad was probably bipolar. We didn't know that word back then. He was very loving and caring 80% of the time. And that's really what made it so complicated and so hard, really, because when his demons took over, they took over, you know. So we did, uh, like, you know, Fourth of July, we would go by. Dad would probably splurge for $20 worth of firecrackers and bottle rockets. You know, we didn't, it was big for us. It wasn't, you know, big for most people. Uh, Christmases were, we usually got one good gift. And uh, there's one Christmas in the book that I, I talk about where, uh dad apparently didn't have money that we had a really really rough christmas but you know we did pretty much normal things the only thing that we didn't do that other people did was we didn't have people over you know most people even people i went to school with my whole life my whole childhood that i went to high school with didn't know where i lived and uh, and you couldn't really hardly get to our house the the bus driver and the mail carrier wouldn't go down into the woods where we were. You know, it's just a trail basically that went down in there. And, uh, so, and we, so did, did your family own any land or you just basically lived on a shack? The reason, yeah, that was probably the only stability we had is my mom's father had gave all of his kids. He gave our mom and uh, my mom and dad 30 acres. So we had 30 acres there and if it hadn't have been for that most of the, my dad's brothers and sisters moved around a lot they didn't settle down well some of them did some of them settled down but some of them moved around a lot and i fear with the way my dad's mentality was you know we if we hadn't have had that property that was paid for we would have been you know i would have been that new kid at school every year somewhere else you know he would have just went wherever he could find work and that would never last and we would move again. So, you know, we had 30 acres there and we farmed it. Then we had pigs over about 15 acres of it at one point, but dad would farm and dad would rent land from other people. He would rent hundred acres here and there and do all okra or all watermelons. And we were what uh, you call truck farmers. And the difference there is we picked everything we planted and we hauled it to the farmer's market. You had no, uh, you had no help on the farm. Sir, you had no help on the farm. Hush. No, what? You had no, no help. The family just oh, worked the farm. Kids, no, he had kids. He didn't hire people. He had kids, you know, so no, we were the help, you know, later on, after I went to college, he would hire, you know, these uh, rough characters he would find, you know, to help him do stuff. And, uh, but no, it was all us. It was, I, I was never, I never got out of any of it being the oldest son, but everybody. How did you get out then, Neil? You, you went to Auburn university, you got a BS in applied math and you became a math teacher. 
or you went to Milwaukee. Were you consciously trying to escape? Is this a book in part about escaping? Yeah, I mean, for all of us, for my brothers and sisters, it was all about escaping. My sister, oldest sister, uh, she got married at 16 and left. My second sister, Nina, she ran away from home when she turned 16. When I turned 16, my dad kicked me out. I didn't really have a choice. So I ended up was living with my oldest sister, even when I graduated high school. I went to Northeast, which is a, a community college about 12 miles from my parents' home the first year to save up money. And uh, then I went to Auburn. So yeah, everything with me was about escape. And I, I really regret, I regret now how seldom I would go home to visit. It was just not, dad was easy to be around because he got over stuff, you know, whatever, no matter how bad it was he did, he would forget about it and expect you to, too, you know, but you never knew what would set him off. I mean, even when we were adults, his temper controlled him. You mentioned J.D. Vance. Now, of course, he's running as a, as a Trumpist for the Senate. What was your father's politics? What was the politics of the family? I don't remember my family being political, but back in that day when I was a kid, the South was very uh, lean Democrat. You know, as a matter of fact, I can remember when Guy Hunt became the first Republican governor in Alabama in over 100 years. So everything was very, you know, the good old boys, the, the redneck group that the whole history of rednecks is not anything offensive, you know, was was uh, part of the Democratic Party. So I think really is when Reagan started running. And I think Karl Rove was kind of the de master design of, of helping change the politics of the South. And, and now Alabama is so far right, it should be an island off the coast of North Carolina. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, but, you know, we, my family itself was not political about the racial makeup of Sand Mountain uh, during the Civil War? It sounds as if that area was pretty lawless, sort of caught between the two sides. Are there or were there African-American families? And what were the relations between whites and blacks? Well, where I grew up, there were no blacks. So there was no relationship. There were some in Fort Payne. But as a kid, I didn't know much about Fort Payne. It was a obviously still a very small town, only six miles away. But to me, it, it could have been New York City. Uh, but yeah, the, I don't remember. There's a lot of people with Native American blood, and they still have the uh, Cherokee um, events here. You know, they even have a guy who does totem poles, and they have the rain dances. They're used to do that a lot in this area. But I don't know of any full-blooded Cherokee in this area anymore. After the forced relocation, which was in 1835, 1837 when it happened here, I think, the, the law was passed in 1835. Andrew Jackson signed the bill, uh, and that led to, of course, the Trail of Tears, the forced relocation to Oklahoma. Uh, I'm just a big history buff when it comes to Cherokee. My dad's grandmother, he would tell us, was full-blooded Cherokee. And uh, dad had those features. I don't know if you looked at pictures in the book, but uh, my dad had this very dark complexion. He had eyes that were almost black. 
he had no hair on his torso at all. I mean, he had he mm -hmm. had Native American features, um, but it was a very big part of the history here. But it's also a very dark part of the history here. And I noticed that thing you just flipped up there about the Civil War. A lot of people in this area don't know this, and a lot of us don't talk about it. But this area was pro-Union during the war. As many rebel flags as you see flying in this area, this area was pro-Union. As a matter of fact, the city park in Fort Payne, before they changed the name a few years ago, was called Union Park. And it was soldiers from this area that actually protected Sherman on his way to the, to the sea. So a lot of people don't realize that about this area, that it was pro-Union. So, Neil, there are large communities of African-Americans in Alabama. Um, it's one of the things that everybody knows. I've lived in Alabama and Birmingham. You said it's only 90 miles away. Very significant communities of African-Americans. Why were there no African-Americans on Sand Mountain? You know, that I can't say. It wasn't like there were signs up, at least not when I was there. But there are a lot of things more powerful than signs, of course. Uh, I don't really know. And, and it wasn't all of Sand Mountain. I think it's just the probably 12 or 13 small towns on the north end of so Sand Mountain. So you Mount. grew up without any experience, knowledge of black people. You just didn't, basically you didn't know they existed in Alabama. Oh, I knew they existed because my dad used the N-word constantly. Uh, I knew they existed and I heard horrible, horrible stories. And as a matter of fact, my dad was, uh, again, a very violent person. And that would lead to some arguments because I would, I would always defend them. And I can remember one time when I was probably 13 years old and he goes off on, you know, he would just go off on these tangents about black people. And again, he wouldn't use that term. And I finally said, well, dad, let me ask you a question. If every single black person in the world were bad, evil, except one, would it be fair to judge that one based on everyone else? And he's like, well, no, it wouldn't. And he, I was actually more expecting a, a right cross than I was a, an agreement there. But, but it was so people don't think there was racism here because it was so much the norm, you know, it's like, Oh, it's not racism. It's just how it's always been. But, I can't say for sure why. I can tell you that there's only a few now, but when I see a black person on Sand Mountain, it still it still shocks me. When I go into Dollar, I mean, I lived in Milwaukee for 10 years. When I came back and I go into a Dollar General and there's beer, I can't believe it because DeKalb County is still dry to this day. To this day, the county of DeKalb still embraces. Uh, Are there no black people on Sand Mountain, do you think, because they would fear violence, some sort of, you know, hostility of one kind or another, or they simply I would definitely don't be hostile. Hostile into it. I would hope there wouldn't be violence, but there would be hostility. There, yeah, I think they just even in 2022. No, no, not now. No, not now. There, there's a lot of black families living on Sam Mountain now. Nobody even pays it any mind. Thank goodness we've gotten to that point. I ain't saying that that is a lot of population, the black population on Sam Mountain in this area, but there are some, you know, but I don't think anybody pays it any mind. And of course, now the town of Fort Payne has a huge Latino population because it used to be that people would come here and work the potato fields uh, and then go home. People from Guatemala, mostly. 
Then when the hosiery mills, which, you know, for a long time, Fort Payne was known as the hosiery mill capital of the world, had more hosiery mills, you know, like over 50% of the socks on the whole planet was made right here in Fort Payne. And when they started hiring Latinos, then they started, you know, permanent jobs. They started, you know, staying. So we have. Why a pretty- did you come back, uh, Neil? You live now in Fort Payne. You and I, and I. This is my word, not yours. But you, you escaped this impoverished, violent ex- background. Your childhood. You left. You went to the university. Then you taught in Milwaukee, and yet you came back. Why? I don't know. There's something about this place. It's like a magnet. You know, everybody comes back. My sister lived away. She moved away right after high school too. my younger sister. And she became a police officer and investigator for about 17 years. And then she turns around and moves back here. And uh, I don't know what it is, but I I moved away. Uh, I went one year to junior college and then I moved away and I never came back until 2016. So what's that? Six years ago. I moved back here and but that was always my plan to, to retire or settle down here. I own property here. I own several properties here. I don't know. It's just it's just home, you know. Neil, but, um, one of the other things <laughs> that was intriguing to me about um, Sand Mountain, I don't know much about it, do a little bit of research for this conversation. Uh, between 1903 and 1905, there was a short lived commune of 40 Russian Jewish families attempting to form a collective farm. So some socialist Russian Jews escaped to Sand Mountain, presumably sort of separate from civilization. Does that ring a bell? Did you have any experience growing up with these people who were refugees, if you like, from cities, from the world, trying their own experimental restart? No, no, they were nothing but white farmers when I grew up. No Russian Jewish collective farmers? No. So what, uh, uh, to, to end, uh, Neil, what do you want? You, you know, you've written this book. As you say, you've written a number of books before, uh, not on the same subject. This is an autobiography. What do you want people to remember, to take away from With the Devil's Help? Well, I, I think, I, you know, one thing I explained in the epilogue is that there are a lot of people that a lot of people have childhoods far more traumatic than mine. Well, uh, I don't know, not a lot. I mean, you were beaten every day by your father, who was a, who, was a, who, who as you say, at best was bipolar, probably had... I don't know if it was every uh, day, but it averaged, it averaged more than one a day. I know that. Uh, how much worse of an upbringing could you have had? You lived in poverty. Every, all your siblings tried to escape. All they what? All your siblings, your brothers and sisters tried to get out. Yeah. Um, How much worse of a childhood could you have had? Say that one more time. How much worse of a childhood could it have been? You said many had worse than you. I can't imagine. Maybe one or two. But mostly, it sounds like an entirely miserable childhood. Well, when I was probably 13 years old, there was a a kid younger than me, one year younger. I cannot even remember his name. I just remember his best friend at school, Kermit, but he killed himself because he got a bad grade on his report card and he was afraid to show it to his dad. I mean, there were some violent, violent men, you know, there was a, 
but back to your question, what I would like people to take from it and what I mentioned in the, in the uh, epilogue is that it's, uh, I think it is that experience that people go through that needs telling. It seems to be that it's in people's minds that, oh, well, that person went on to become a doctor or a lawyer like J.D. Vance, you know. They had a very, you know, they overcame it and did something. Well, to me, it's just getting out is what makes, uh, what needs to be told. And somebody, uh, a professor from the University of Alabama who's on Alabama Public Radio just caught me by surprise when I saw a review he did of the book two days ago. And uh, he compared it to, uh, gosh, what is the name of the cruise? Uh, a black fellow wrote this very popular book. And I, I don't know. I'm going to try to find it here. So I hope I don't uh, uh, cut you off here. Well, don't worry, Neil. We, we, you, you can always uh, add that. Let's end. Um, your so book is out with the devil's help, a true story of poverty, mental illness, and murder growing up on, on Sand Mountain in uh, the mountains of northern Alabama. A, a, a very unusual story. Congratulations, Neil, on the book. What else would you suggest people read? You, uh, you have many other books, of course, as well. But what other writers are you reading? What other, other genres do you like? Well, you know, uh, when I was growing up, sci-fi, H.G. Wells captured me. And I've loved sci-fi ever since. But I love uh, memoirs, too. Uh, one of my favorite memoirs from long ago was uh, Senator Jeremiah Denton, When Hell Was in Session. Do you remember that one? Incredible book. But I have uh, some here that uh, this is The Lie, uh, a memoir of two marriages, catfishing and coming out. This is, uh, he's gotten to be a good friend of mine. We've never actually met, but William Demeron. Uh, of course, the coming out part is, of course, and, uh, and Mary and going through the motions. Coming out is gay. Yeah, coming out is gay. And of course, he I, had. I don't a, suppose there was a lot of openly gay people on San mountain when you were growing up you know i don't even remember uh anybody talking about that but i do know now of some that were even back then but they they had to hide it, it, it you know they would probably have to hide being gay more than someone would have to hide being black if you could of course hide being black so yeah that was a horrible place to grow up for anything uh, so i i guess you could if you were particularly light-skinned you could claim to be white you could pass but that's pretty hard especially uh on sand mountain i'm guessing i don't know i don't know if anybody ever tried that but anyway the lie a memoir of two marriages catfishing and coming out is really a great book the cool part of the catfishing is uh he learned because these women kept writing him women who thought they were in a relationship with him that catfishers were taking his picture and his uh information his age and everything and you know pretending to be him and because he's such a good looking guy they were trying to you know probably get these women to eventually scam them out of money i assume was their was their goal and it's only when he just kept getting emails he didn't realize people were doing that and then, as i tell him often i said well you know no one's ever used my picture for that so that must make me a better person right <laughs>